on-the-ground interventions to free workers in India from modern slavery are having an impact. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. The Freedom Fund has been working with more than 40 frontline NGOs in India in a five-year, $15 million campaign to end forced labor in that country. A recent report on the group's efforts shows progress. The number of households in bonded labor plummeted from 56% to 11% across northern and southern India. That's the equivalent of 125,000 fewer people in bonded labor in what the Freedom Fund has identified as hotspots in those two regions. Today we'll learn about the work of the Freedom Fund from Managing Director Amal Mera. He'll explain the group's strategy of pursuing on-the-ground efforts to help workers in spinning mills, garment factories, and brick kilns and quarries. We'll talk about the challenges of securing real change in India's labor force and the obstacles that NGOs face from local governments and employers. And we'll discuss how international brands can be part of the solution. So here is my conversation with Amal Mera. Amal Mera, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Please tell me about the scope of this initiative in India. How long did it take, money spent, organizations involved? Just how wide an effort was it? Over the past five years, we at the Freedom Fund have been piloting these two major programs to reduce the occurrence of bonded labor in both northern and southern India. Over about these five years, we've spent around $15.8 million dollars supporting more than 40 frontline Indian NGOs who've been working together under what we call our hotspot approach to build and address systems that are related to bonded labor and trafficking. Did you feel like you already had pretty good intelligence about the extent of the practice of bonded labor in India, or was there more to be learned as the initiative got underway? A little bit of both. Before we undertake any initiative, we do conduct extensive prevalence research to be able to detect the incidence of these types of forms of modern slavery. And then that helps guide our response in the appropriate way that we support frontline partners to act in that regard. But of course, these are sort of fluctuating at times. So we have uh, the ability to act and modify our strategies as we learn and as conditions may change on the ground. And did you, in fact, learn more along the way? Did the problem turn out to be even in worse or more, more widespread than you even thought? Or was it pretty much your, meeting your expectations? I think it was pretty much meeting our expectations. We had heard and seen ample research to suggest the incidence of bonded labor in both northern India and southern India. And of course, they look different in each context, and I can get into that. But what we were able to find as we funded these frontline partners is interventions that seemed to be working. And then, therefore, we were able to sort of allocate and move resources to be able to support those even further in our strategies. Forty NGOs on the ground. How in the world did you coordinate all those organizations and make sure that the whole effort went off smoothly? 
<laughs> That's a great question. We have an incredible team at the Freedom Fund, and that includes local partners as well as staff that are on the ground that really know the network of NGOs that exist in a particular community. So it takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of collaboration, and it takes a clear focus on a goal, which in our case is to end modern slavery in these communities. Now, it sounds like the actual efforts that are undertaken by these organizations were very wide-ranging. Can we talk about some of the, uh, literally, what are some of the interventions that were undertaken in order to move this forward? Sure. So we don't believe that there's a particular silver bullet to solve challenges around modern slavery. These are very complex rooted in cultural mores and structures, as well as gendered aspects. So what we do is we support a range of interventions, including things like awareness raising and community organizing. We also support rescues and recovery, as well as rehabilitation for survivors. And then, of course, we also support legal aid and other schemes to sift standards and laws on the ground to be able to ensure that these types of harms do not occur. I do want to drill down more to the actual types of interventions, though. I mean, let's talk, first of all, about the advisory, the educational thing. On the ground, what does that involve in the community? How exactly do you educate or advise a community on this practice to the extent that it would be stopped? So our approach relies on a sort of an empowerment-centered model. So what we do is we look at different levers about educating communities about their rights, about helping them understand what is being done to them and explaining to them the illegality of those acts. But then we also work with them to build resistance. What that looks like is that it's empowerment through organizing, bringing these coalitions together to shift the larger systems at play. We work with them to address legislative or other barriers that may be inhibiting their freedom. It is a range of different interventions, and it looks different depending on the particular hotspot. And what we really try to do is tailor our interventions with the type of slavery that exists and the partners that are on the ground. Do you also have partners who are working higher up at the legislative level, or is this all on the ground efforts we're talking about here? So we, through our hotspot approach, we work at the local level, but we also understand that there are broader systems, laws, and policies that need shifting. And what we've tried to do and are seeking to do a bit more of is bring together some of our approaches into common advocacy platforms. So we have, for instance, a supply chains and legal portfolio under what we call our global initiatives. And these sort of take learnings and lessons from our hotspots and try to push them into the international policy sphere or towards domestic legislative efforts so that we can really be informed by what frontline partners are feeling and experiencing and the solutions there, but driving them to some of those policy debates that may be happening. Tell me more about what you mean by the phrase hotspots. Is that where workers are most at risk, or how do you define that? So a hotspot for us is a geographically confined area where there is a high prevalence of a particular form of slavery. So what that encompasses is either... For instance, in southern India, we're looking at Tamil Nadu. In northern India, we're looking at Bihar and surrounding areas. So these are confined areas where there is this defined form of slavery. And what we try to do is invest in communities working within those hotspots to change the status quo. You talked about the power imbalance of employer and employee, and indeed that is a problem all over the world, as as I'm sure you know, with regard to uh, manufacturing offshore. But you have these so-called community 
vigilance committees, as you say, that actually can bargain collectively with those employers? Does that help to offset that balance web to, to any degree? And if so, how open are employers to actually engaging with those committees? This is the real tricky part about addressing forced labor, specifically bonded labor in supply chains. Is that massive power differential between, let's say, the brand at the top but then also the suppliers within that supply chain, and then finally and ultimately the workers. So we find that through interventions that focus on building worker power and worker organizing and allowing workers to band together, there is a bit more leverage that they can play within that supply chain. And we've had some really strong engagement between worker groups working directly with factory owners to help identify before harm occurs, conditions that might need to be addressed. And so what we're really hoping to do is that those learnings will shift a bottom-up approach to supply chain reform. To what extent is production in India, the relevant production in India, filter up to global brands? And to what extent can you involve global brands in your efforts? Because after all, this is a big image thing for them. And are they also involved in helping you to enable the, uh, bring about an end to bonded labor and modern slavery? In southern India, the hotspot is looking at spinning mills and power looms and hand looms. So these are mostly women workers in the workplace. In those employment relationships, those suppliers and factories are, in fact, within the corporate supply chains of major fast fashion retailers, of high street brands, etc. The tricky part is pushing for transparency down to that level of the supply chain. A lot of the efforts that have thus far been focused at the apparel sector have looked at tier one transparency. But what we're looking at here is actually much deeper within the supply chain. And so drawing that line between a particular brand and a particular spinning mill is quite difficult. We are, in fact, engaging in efforts to do just that. There's a number of organizations that are also trying to do that mapping. But thus far, we've had to rely on public disclosure by brands themselves and then build partnerships that way. We've also had some success in working directly with the suppliers, like the factory owners, the spinning mill owners, et cetera, that may be within the region or grouped together in an industry collective, and that's proven successful. But again, the missing piece, and that we're all trying to work towards, is pushing down that awareness and that transparency, and then building some leverage with those companies at the top of the supply chain to be able to set conditions within that supply chain. Perhaps in the future, your efforts will be aided by technologies such as blockchain, which is currently undergoing certain pilots to establish the provenance of products all the way back to production, farms, mines, and the like. Maybe do you see that as a potential going forward as, as being help in your efforts as well? I certainly do. I think any types of tracking and traceability would be very useful when it comes to opaque supply chains. I've seen this work quite effectively in the case of conflict minerals, which obviously, as you know, has been a huge issue, including in the legislative realm with Dodd-Frank Section 1502. So in the context of our work here with the apparel sector, I believe that there could be some useful applications of technological innovations that would help build the traceability needed to sort of illuminate that supply chain. Now, can I ask you what type of, if any, pushback or opposition you've encountered at the local level when these NGOs go in to initiate these programs? 
whether it's a case of political situations or just cultural mores that oppose what you're trying to do, is that a big obstacle and how do you overcome it? I think, again, when we talk about systems of slavery, these are complex. They have power dynamics, but also gendered aspects. In the context of some of our work, much of our work, in fact, there are both of those that show up. So what we try to do is work as closely as we can with the key partners. So we build relationships with as much as we can, industry associations that are at the local level, mill owners themselves, get them to understand that our work here is about trying to address a harm and understand that we're not seeking in any way to disrupt a particular supply chain or one's business, but rather to lift economic opportunity and jobs in a way that is fair and equitable and, and isn't predicated on illegality, which it is under current conditions in many situations. So you say it's a five-year effort. Has it been five years since you undertook it, since you started it? That's right. We started in both northern and southern India about five years ago. And it's still underway, going strong, I take it. It's, not an, it's an open-ended type of initiative, I would assume. That's right. So between 2015 and 2018, we noted this fall in this prevalence. This research is, is showing that the prevalence has fallen from between 56% to 11% across both of these hotspots. That equates to around 125,000 fewer individuals in situations of bonded labor across the two hotspots. Our goal is complete eradication of modern slavery. So we will continue to work and to fund and to support these communities as best we can to be able to end the scourge of modern slavery there. Even more encouraging, you said the percentage of households with children in bonded labor dropped from 13% to 1% in northern India and from 12% to 3% in southern India. So that's very encouraging, I would guess. It is, in fact. These types of results tell us a couple things. One, they tell us that our approach is working that the core to addressing modern slavery is to support frontline partners, to be able to work together, to build power together, and to challenge the systems that allow slavery to persist. But they also tell us that more work needs to be done and that the lessons from this can be applied into other contexts. And that's what we're really hoping to do now that we've had these validation findings from many of the independent evaluators. Well, to the extent you had any benchmarks going forward at the beginning, how do you feel about where you are now in terms of the results that have been yielded from this initiative? Has it met your expectations? Are you satisfied at least with where you are now? Or, or where do you feel you are based on what you were hoping to achieve when you started? I think we feel very satisfied, but understand that more work needs to be done. I think we're realists in our approach to tackling modern slavery, which is that this will take significant investment. It'll take focused resource and time, and it'll take bottom-up approaches. So we are taking a moment to celebrate the incredible work of our partners thus far, but we're doubling down on our commitment to do more and to scale our efforts and to take these learnings and apply them and share them widely with communities working to address issues like modern slavery. Well, that's my next big question. Do you feel like you've created a template that could be applied to other parts of the world, or are there aspects of this initiative that are unique to India? We believe that we have created a system that shows to have been workable for addressing modern slavery. Of course, we understand that none of this would be possible without the resilience, courage, and hard work of our partners on the ground. We take cues from them and we support them. So really, this achievement in reduction is due to their work. But we also understand that these learnings are somewhat context-specific. 
slavery looks different in different parts of the world in different sectors because it's so related to power systems. But again, the core message from our results and our work shows that when you support frontline partners, when you support them to work together and you support them in a strategy that addresses these systems of power, that lifts people, that educates them and gives them an ability to own their rights, then incredible things can happen. And I think that's what we see as the formula that can be applied in other contexts as well. And what you are dealing with here is Indian nationals, the Indians on the ground in factories. But can you also apply this to the problem of, I don't know if you'd call it forced labor, but the withholding of passports and the inability of temporary workers doing business or working in, in foreign countries, the inability of them to leave until their contracts are up. That is a form of indentured or bonded labor in and of itself. Is that also relevant to your efforts or is that a completely different issue in your mind? No, I think the core tenants hold for that. In fact, we have a hotspot that looks precisely at that type of issue. In Ethiopia, we're running a program looking at the trafficking and forced labor around women and girls. Ethiopian women and girls often sent to the Middle East to serve as domestic servants. In that context, much of the harm relates to the withholding of passports and confiscation, etc. And that inhibits the ability of these women to move freely. And so there, of course, the interventions look a little bit different because they focus on both the departure and the efforts at the, at the receiving end to be able to understand how we can affect the systems. But of course, the tenants stay the same. Bring frontline partners together, invest in their ability to work on this issue and help them build a strategy to do just that. Amal Mera, I want to thank you so much for taking time to share with us the efforts of the Freedom Fund to bring an end to modern-day slavery and bonded labor in India and for the entire world, for that matter. It sounds like great work. We wish you all the best in the future, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Bob. Really appreciate this opportunity. That was my conversation with Amal Mera of the Freedom Fund, talking about efforts to eradicate modern slavery in India. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.